If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 11. We're in our second uh, sermon over this life-giving series. So if you've not been here, let me just kind of catch you up with what we've been talking about, what we've been doing. We have this display up here, uh, and each one of these color stones are representative of our five kind of key core values. I'll use the word key again. There, that'll work. Uh, our, our five key values um, that we're trying to celebrate and be as a church. So, so we want to be a life-giving church, and we want to be a gospel-rooted church. We want to be a spirit-filled church. We want to be a community-driven church. We want to be a church where anyone can come and belong, and, and uh, that you can find a home right here at First Baptist. And so what I've kind of invited the church to do, invited you to do, is uh, during the invitation, or, or maybe before service, or even after service, um, if you have a story of where the church has fulfilled one of those things, that the church has just given you life, or, or it's helped you to understand the gospel better, that just to come and move one of those marbles from the little basket behind it into the tube, and over the course of the year, we get to see what God's doing at First Baptist. That's the, the model that we've been unfolding with. And so thank you for all the stories already. Each one of these marbles is one of the stories of how the church has done that. But what we're doing over the course of the year is, is we're talking through this idea right now of life-giving. And the next month in March, we'll talk about gospel-rooted and so on and so forth. And so what we're talking about is how is God a life-giving God? We've talked a lot about how God brings order to chaos, and that's how he gives life in Genesis 1, and we'll, we'll catch up with, with all of that. But today, I was thinking about, have you ever noticed how we make, I was going to say rational decisions, and I don't know how often rational they are, but I'll say it this way. We make decisions based off of historical patterns we've seen in life. See if I can explain what I, what I mean by that. I, I have this weird historical pattern in my life where uh, I, I just, for some reason, I have a tendency that I'll just pass out at things. Like, um, there's been stories where my wife has, like, cut her finger and it was bleeding. And I was the one that was like, I got to sit down because I'm, I'm going to lose it right here. Because I, I, I'm just not good with stuff like that. Um, and, and this all kind of came to a head one time when we were in the Socorro gym. Uh, and, and we were working out. And we were getting towards the end of the workout. And I told Haley, I really just, I'm not feeling good right now. Um, like, all, it, all the blood kind of was, like, leaving my head. I was like, I just need to go get on an exercise bike and cool off. And Haley looked at me like weird, and she's like, it looks to me like you need to lay down or like sit down. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I just need to get to the exercise bike and cool off. So I got over to the exercise bike, and I started pedaling. And all of a sudden, like the music got really loud. I couldn't tell. And then I just like woke up, and there were like 12 people standing over me. There's nothing embarrassing like that when you're like the one person at the gym that's laying there on the cold ground, and there's 12 people looking over you. And, and ever since then, that, that'll happen from time to time is I'll look at Haley and I'll think like, I don't really feel good. And I don't know, I, I'm not a physician, so I don't know exactly what's happening. I don't know if like blood's not getting to my brain or oxygen's not getting to my brain, but ultimately like I don't think very clearly at a time like that. And so I'll tell her like, I just need to go get water. I'll be fine. And so Haley, have, having recognized this pattern in me, um, this is where Haley is like this weird oxymoronic way of like nice mean to me when she needs to be, because she'll, she'll be like, you're not going to do anything. You're going to lay down right here right now, and you're going to just, just relax for a little bit. I'll go get you some water. And so she's recognized this pattern, and so she makes decisions that's going to make sure that Philip doesn't get on an exercise bike and pass out again pattern, right? You guys do this in your life where you recognize patterns, and so you've learned that you need to make decisions to deal with those, those patterns. Do you ever, um, have any of you guys gotten to where you don't answer the phone if you don't recognize the number? You guys do that? Be because there's a pattern of what? 
scam phone calls. In fact, this was a, a, a news story last October. A guy had gotten lost uh, hiking a mountain in Colorado. And so Search and Rescue was trying to call him and get a hold of him, and he wouldn't answer the phone because he didn't recognize the number. And so like, they finally went out the next day and found him. They're like, why didn't you answer? He's like, well, I didn't know. I thought it was a spam phone call. I didn't want to answer it. Like, we, we set up these patterns in our life, these barriers, positive, negative ways, both kind of in between. And we say, well, I see this pattern, and so to prevent this from happening or to ensure that this happens, uh, I'm going to take this action. And I say all that to say this. If we take this idea of hope and, and layer that over top, we, I think we find what, what I would argue is a reasonable and even biblical definition of hope. So here's going to be our working definition today. Hope is recognizing that a situation outside of our control by the way, when, when something's outside of our control, we have a word for that. It's called chaos, to tie it in with what we've been talking about. So, so hope is recognizing that a situation outside of our control has a historical pattern of being brought to order. Okay, let me see if I can give an example to, to make this tangible for you. Uh, have you ever had someone, when you're going to go off on a flight, and they'll say, like, have a safe flight? Isn't that like the most ridiculous thing anyone could ever say? Have a safe flight. I have no control over that flight. That's nothing that, like, I have no, no control in assuring that the two million parts of the plane work perfectly while traveling at close to the speed of sound as sharp metal blades rotate at supersonic speeds like 60 feet from where I'm setting, uh, seven miles above the ground in negative 65 degree temperatures. Do you guys want to fly anymore? Right? That's what flying is, but I have no control over that. But, but what I do know is that there's a pattern that the plane I'm on and, and the pilot that's flying it has done it a hundred times or, or hundreds of times before. And, and so I put my hope, to use it in that way, in that pattern rather in my lack of control because I can't control anything. And I say all that to say, do you, do you see how this differs from optimism? Because what we do with hope a lot of times is we convey that hope and optimism are really uh, like hand-in-hand -hand emotions. That it's just that, that you hope things, you anticipate things will work out better than, than you're expecting. That hopefully there's a good end to all of this. And so that's, and we're even using the word hope in describing optimism. But I don't think the biblical definition of hope is, is this idea of just excitement or, or optimism. There's, there's more decision-making and, and faith and, and rationale behind it all. So if we go back to two weeks ago when we talked about Genesis 1 and God's ability to bring chaos to order and how that brings life, what, what we're really noting is this pattern that emerges of God bringing order to chaos. And God maintains that pattern all throughout Genesis. So Genesis 1 to, to Genesis 3 when humanity falls into sinful chaos and God, rather than just letting humanity be destroyed or just destroying them on the spot, which is what we were owed, God comes in and he gives them love instead of destroying them. And he gives them hope by promising to defeat Satan and death once and for all. That he gives them forgiveness by sacrificing an animal on their behalf and clothing them with that animal's skin. And you can then start to walk through the Bible and see all of these patterns unfold of, of who God is, and you can start seeing them repeat as he continues to give life in this way, as he continues to show love and hope and forgiveness, as he continues to bring order to chaos. And this is where we find life. This is where we find the purpose to live. We find the joy of life. And so last week, we began saying that all of this 
really comes to a point in one person in the Bible, his name is Jesus. That if you really want to see hope and forgiveness and love on display, then read the Gospels because you'll find it on display all throughout Jesus' life. So, so we said this last week, God gives life by giving Jesus. And then we can go in and start looking into all these different stories of Jesus and see how, like we said last week, God or Jesus gives life by loving us. Or what we're going to talk about today, Jesus gives life through giving hope. And we're going to do that in John chapter 11. In John 11, Jesus confronts what is perhaps the most hopeless situation that he's encountered up to this point in his ministry. Uh, and before we get into that, I just I need to set up context, because context really matters today. Um, and John is just, man, the, the gospel of John is immaculate. It's, it's incredible. Um, John has connected this pattern of God giving life in Genesis chapter 1 all the way throughout his gospel. And if you read, we talked about this last week, if you read Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1 in tandem, you'll find some very interesting overlaps that John's intentionally connecting his book all the way back to Genesis 1. And then you can read through and start to find all of these poetic details that John's doing. So if you remember back to Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1 has this repetition of seven all over it, right? How, How many days are there? Seven days. How many words in the opening line? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven Hebrew words in that. How many times does God call his creation good? Seven times. It's all over. So if you take that concept and transfer it over to the book of John, John's going to follow the same pattern. So in chapter 1, guess how many titles he gives Jesus? Seven. And then if you keep going with that, guess how many miraculous signs Jesus performs throughout the book? Seven miraculous signs from turning the water into wine to the resurrection. Um, There's seven I am blank statements. So I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Jesus is going to make these seven statements. And then there's just seven basic I am statements. Referencing when God tells Moses, um, tell them that the I am sent you. So Jesus will say things like, well, before Abraham was, I am. And and this is amazing because this all comes to the seventh time that he says, I am. And this happens when uh, Jesus is in the garden and he's about to be arrested. The soldiers come up and they say, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus responds, I am. And do you know what happens to the soldiers? They all fall down. Yeah, they just, they fall down at the power of this statement. And then they get up and ask again. And I have to think like, I don't know when I would be more frightened to be like, okay, who's Jesus again? And you're like cowering back, right? It's, John is building this poetically. And I say all that to say, sometimes people will take that and be like, see, look, the Bible has like secret codes in it. It doesn't have secret codes in it. Don't, don't read the Bible and think that you're going to find some secret code to determine something that's like a mystery that that's not what the Bible's for. But there is poetic use of numbers that's proving something. And what this is proving is John has put thought and detail into writing this story so that we might believe. He's paralleling everything. He's showing how this isn't just something new that's happened, but this is God from the beginning of time at work that's led up to this point. John is intentionally connecting the characteristic and person of God in the Old Testament to the characteristic and person of Jesus. And he does all this intentionally to prove the purpose of the book in John chapter 21, verse 31. I've written these things that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing in him, you would have life. John's tying it all the way back to Genesis 1. 
saying that this is the way God has brought order to our chaos. This is the way God brings us life by giving us Jesus. It's a theme all throughout the book. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Guess what you're going to find a verse in John chapter 11 about? That whoever believes in Jesus will have life. It's over and over and over again. And John communicates this by following a pattern up until this point in the book. Throughout the book, Jesus 10, when Jesus makes this statement of, I and the Father are one. He's complaining, or he's explaining equality with God. That I and the Father are one. And the Pharisees see that this is blasphemy. You can't say that you're God. So they pick up stones to kill Jesus on the spot, and so Jesus has to go on the run. He, he escapes. He gets out of Jerusalem. He crosses the Jordan. He gets, he gets out of Dodge. He, he's not safe for him to be in Jerusalem anymore. And I say all that to say this is what leads us into John chapter 11, because at the beginning of John chapter 11, Jesus is faced with a conundrum. See, Jesus' friend is sick. And if Jesus is going to deal with this sickness, he's going to have to go back to the town where he is essentially wanted. So for Jesus to help Lazarus, what does he have to do? He has to go and lay his life down so that his friend may live. The question is, does Jesus lay down his life for the life of a friend? Absolutely he does. Why do we know that he would do that? Because there's this historical pattern of Jesus doing that, that he's that type of God. That's how he loves creation. And it's a foreshadowing of the next story that John's going to tell of how Jesus gives his life directly on the cross for the sake of humanity. Do you see how all of this is intricately tied together from Genesis to John to Revelation to now? I just want you to understand that before we dive in to, to this book. Philip, what does all this have to do with hope? So let's, let's go back to our definition and we'll jump into the text. Hope is recognizing that a situation outside of our control has a historical pattern of being brought to order. John 11 opens up with a situation that's far out of control. I mean, Lazarus is, is dead. Spoiler alert, if you've not read this story, he, he dies, and then Jesus brings him back to life. That's, that's kind of the whole mantra of the story. But, but what is hopelessness if not the feeling that things are beyond our control? Mary, Martha, the disciples, they can't do anything to control the situation. And yet none of it phases Jesus because Jesus is going to give life through giving hope. Let's start off in verse 1 through 8. We're going to do the same thing we did last week where we'll, we'll skip some things here and there and jump to some different passages. That's just a, it, it's a long chapter. And so in order to get through it all, I want to just highlight a couple different things. Starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 8. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea. Rabbi, the disciples told him, Just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again. Uh, there's so many points that come out of this text. I mean, John 11 is where you could, you could write like four sermon series just, just out of this because Jesus hears that someone he loves is in pain and he declares his purpose in verse 4 that he's going to deal with this pain. He even says, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
And so you're like, yeah, Jesus is going to go tackle it and conquer the situation. And what does Jesus do after he makes this declaration? He waits. He actually waits until it's too late, according to man's standards. He waits until the situation is utterly hopeless before he takes action. And that's a whole sermon in itself. But what I want you to understand is I want you to understand the complexity of John chapter 11. All the different things that are at play in in this story. All the different concerns and factors because you have love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and all all the people there that Jesus loves them. John says that. You you have concern that that Mary and Martha are concerned for their brother, that they're worried that if Jesus doesn't show up quick that they're going to lose him. That there's this idea of, of helplessness. That there's risk, that Jesus is going to risk his life by just going to, to this, this location. That there's hurt. And all of this is dealing with this concept of, of life and death. And if you want to dive just head first into an ocean of hopelessness, spend a few moments thinking about death outside of the cross. By the way, this is not going to be the part where you want to like take notes and hang this on your refrigerator. But I need to make this point because I, I think it's significant to understand. Just, just think about, for a few minutes, death outside of the cross. Because no matter how much we exercise, no, no matter how perfect of a diet we can come up with and eat, and no, however, no matter how much we can avoid this and consume this, no matter how much modern medicine progresses, we can't control death. Right? The, the only thing we're doing is prolonging the inevitable. Wow, Philip, thanks. That makes me feel so good. That's, that's what I come to church to, to learn about. But, but seriously, like if you go and talk to people that don't believe in God and you want to watch them have a, a crisis, let them think about this a little bit. I've, I've told this story before, but uh, in Socorro, New Mexico Tech would do a thing uh, when students were getting back to campus that they called Tech Talks. It was like a playoff of TED Talks where they would have their professors uh, come and give like motivational speeches to the students and ask and answer questions. And so there was this one particular professor, and it's a STEM school, science technology, uh, so avid atheist professor. Um, and so one of the students said, hey, how do you find motivation you know, to, to get up every morning and to do the things that you're supposed to do? And this professor's answer was, no joke, I self-delude, or I delude myself. I wake up in the morning and I tell myself that this morning I'm going to have a really good cup of coffee. You want to watch someone run circles trying to justify existence, that the death of one person totally ripped them apart because they didn't know how to deal with it. This is a hopeless situation. There is devastation at play, and Jesus intentionally allows it all to come to fruition because he's wanting to display once and for all that he is the God over life and death, that he is in power and control over life and over death. See, outside the gospel, the hopelessness of death will always lead us to self-delusion and distraction. But with Jesus, we find hope in the most hopeless situations. Then it goes to verse, jump down to verse 17. So Jesus delays, and he finally comes, comes into town But by the time he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Remember, that's where Jesus was almost getting killed just a few days prior. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. There's one of those I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And so Jesus arrives four four days late. Martha, I, I think John's conveying with this idea of kind of upset with Jesus, comes out and meets him, and her first word is an accusation. Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Do you see a tone of hopelessness in Martha? Now, luckily, she, she's got a foundation where she knows something that will confront death head on. And this is where Jesus begin, begins to bring a spark of hope unlike anything else, a full life-giving hope that transcends, transcends above even the most chaotic, hopeless situations. And with all that, I would just say, do you need more hope in your life? Learn about who Jesus is. Because the more you understand the patterns that he has set forth, and the more you understand the control that he has over everything, that God has over everything, the more your hope comes to fruition and you get to trust that God is still in control. And Martha both, both gets this in some ways, and she totally misses it in, in other ways. Because Jesus comes out and says, hey, your, son, your, your brother's going to rise again. And she's like, yeah, I kind of get that. And he even goes in to say, don't you remember what I've told you? And whoever believes in me will have life. But if you jump uh, just forward to verse 39, when Jesus tells her, hey, roll the stone back, Martha says, Lord, he's already been in there for days. He stinks. Right? She, she both gets it and fails to understand it. And there's a whole sermon in itself with, with that, because that's the glory of the gospel. Like, do, do you know that there are things? Uh, I have this wonderful, amazing, amazing privilege of getting to be a pastor. I've got to study for my undergrad and do four years of Christian studies. I've got to do a master's of divinity. I get paid to to sit in my office and and read books and learn about this. I love it. It's a wonderful blessing that God has given me. But just so you know, like, there are still so many facets of who God is that I just, I, I don't understand, that I don't fully comprehend. And that's the glory of who God is that he's infinite in nature, and we get to start exploring it, and that even when we fail to comprehend it, does God just like write us off as like, well, it's apparent that you don't get this, so go set in time out. No, like he, he loves us. Jesus doesn't look at Martha and say, well, you don't really have enough faith, so I'm not going to do what I was planning on doing. No, he gives hope in this incredibly extravagant we see this patient love as Jesus faces the consequences of sin and the seeds of devastation that it causes. So look at verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus is confronting this idea of sin, and it says, When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved. Make, make note of that word, deeply moved. We're going to come back to it. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, Jesus asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also kept this man from dying? 
Why does Jesus cry? Right, this is one of those classic things. Do you guys ever remember, like, the Sunday school teacher was like, if you memorize a Bible verse, you get candy. And I was like, Jesus wept. I can memorize that one. It's the shortest one of them all, right? But there's something significant going on there. Why is Jesus crying? Because if we go back to the beginning of the book, or the beginning of the chapter, does Jesus know how this whole story is going to end? He absolutely does. He says from verse 4, this will not end in death. He knows that he's going to delay his coming until Lazarus has already died. He's going to show up and bring Lazarus back from the dead. Sometimes I think we read that and we think, well, Jesus is just sad because his, his friend died. And maybe, but like that, that doesn't make sense to me because he knows that in just a few minutes he's going to speak and Lazarus is going to walk right out of that tomb. Why is Jesus crying? Here's what I think is going on in this passage. Jesus cries because he sees firsthand the destruction of sin on the world. See, death was not a part of God's perfect design in Genesis 1. And here are the people that Jesus loves, totally devastated by the chaos of sin. Oh, and how does God bring life? By bringing order to chaos. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his faith wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Again, deeply moved. We're going to come back to that. Jesus prays. And he prays that those listening to him may do what? Belief. It's funny. Does Jesus pray that God will raise Lazarus from the dead? The story of Jesus giving life to everyone around him by bringing a new pattern of hope as he demonstrates that in the most complex of situations, fully beyond and outside of our control, he still maintains full control. Hope is not just crossing your fingers and wishing the best. It's not about being optimistic or excited or giddy. Hope is recognizing that every situation outside of our control has a historical pattern of being completely under God's control. That's hope. Hope is seeing that God has repeatedly infiltrated the chaos and brought order in the past and is therefore in full control of whatever you're facing now. And while he may not bring order in the way you expect, because I don't think any of this was in the way any of these people expected, he is still and will always be in control. And because of that, you can put your hope in Jesus. And because of that, you can find life in Jesus. See, Jesus gives life by giving And it's not just hope in itself, but it's hope rooted. We, we talked, we used the same model last week, so we're going to use it here. It's hope rooted in love. This is your, your second blank if you're taking notes. And I don't want to spend too much because this is where we talked about a lot last week. And if you're interested, you can go listen to that sermon if you missed it. Um, but, but that Jesus, he gives hope that's rooted in his love. 
And he's doing this because at the beginning of the book, he loves Lazarus, and he loves Martha, and he loves Mary, and he loves his disciples, and, and, and he loves them so much that he's willing to lay down his own life so that they may find life. It, it's the gospel at play that, that Jesus loves. This is the whole gospel, Romans 5.8, that God loves us in this way, that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. But there's one more thing I, I want to point out here. Remember, hope is seeing a historical pattern of God's characteristic. So there's a passage in Exodus chapter, I said 36, I think it's 34. In Exodus 34, where uh, God is having a conversation with Moses, and uh, God is going to tell Moses his own characteristics, that God's going to say, this is who I am. And so God describes himself, and he says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. The very first word that God uses to describe himself is the word compassionate. It's really interesting because if you take that Hebrew word and you go to 1 Kings chapter 3, in 1 Kings 3, it's the story of Solomon and, and the two moms and the two babies. And one of the babies dies, right? You guys know, know this Bible story. And so Solomon, uh, they say one of the babies died. Both moms say, well, the one that's living is my baby. They bring it before the king because it's his job to deal with the affairs of the people. And uh, he has to determine which mother this child actually belongs to. So Solomon says, get, let's get a sword. We're going to Chop the baby in half, and you can each have a half of it. And, and he's being facetious. But the real mother of the baby says, I don't want that to happen because I care for that child too much. And in 1 Kings 3, what the Bible says is that this mother was deeply moved for her son. And we're deeply moved in that translation is the same way as this word compassionate in Exodus. It's this idea that if I can suffer on behalf of this person, that it might alleviate some of their sufferings, then let me suffer. If it means that this baby lives in order, if I need to give up my rightful position as mother so that my child can live, I will suffer so that it does not. That is compassion. And it's translated in 1 Kings 3 as deeply moved. What's the key thing of Jesus' emotion in John chapter 11 and 33 and 38 that John says? That Jesus is deeply moved. I think it's the same thing, tying it into compassionate, that Jesus is giving hope rooted in compassionate love. If, if I must suffer by giving up my life so that Lazarus and Martha and Mary and the rest of my disciples might believe in me and have eternal life, then I will lay my life down. I will suffer on behalf of them. Is there a whole story about our Savior suffering on behalf of us? That's the gospel. It's on display right here in John chapter 11, and it's foreshadowing the coming cross where Jesus is going to say, I will take on the suffering of death. I will be punished for the sins of humanity. I will be beaten and bruised and pierced and nailed to a cross so that they might have life. It's hope-filled compassion. This is what Jesus is laying down. And you may both in some ways fail to get it, but it remains true. That Jesus gives us hope through compassionate love. Jesus has offered you life by giving you hope through compassionate love. And what he's looking for from you is just faith. That regardless of the complexity of your situation, regardless of how little control you feel you have, Jesus has full control and you can trust him. And there's thousands upon thousands of years worth of patterns that you can look back to and see that hope. And if you know that hope, then, then share it. Because 
This is what God has called us to do if we want to be a life-giving church. And if Jesus gives life by giving hope rooted in compassionate love, then how do we give life by giving hope rooted in compassionate love? If First Baptist Church is to be a life-giving church, then we do that by giving hope rooted in compassionate love. Seeing other people suffering and saying, I want to suffer with them that their suffering might be less. And I already see this church doing this all the time. It's all over First Baptist, and thank you for letting it be all over this church. This is when a family's in need, dealing with health crisis or whatever, and the church comes in and says, we'll cook meals. We'll, we'll take time out of our days. We'll spend our money so that we might help this family. That's, that's compassion that the church is doing. It's how we give life and give hope. Uh, this is giving up days off. Uh, this is doing child care. Hey, if I can help watch this person's child so that they can go learn about the gospel, I want to do that for their sake. Although I wouldn't want to be like, this is suffering. Like, although sometimes it's childcare, right? But here's my point in all of that. Keep looking for ways. And as you do that, we, we give hope. So I'll close out with this and we'll have just a quick time of response. Romans 15, 13, Paul's closing out his letter to the Romans. And here's what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. And he gives the reason why. So that you may overflow with hope through the power of the Spirit. May the Spirit of God give us hope that gives us joy and peace that we overflow with hope. And what happens when we overflow with hope? People out there start to see hope. And they start to see that there's a purpose for this life because there are so many people out there that are facing situations absolutely outside of their control that they are utterly hopeless. And we have within us the means to say there is still hope because what things you cannot control, God is still in full control of. So if you don't know that, please come talk to me. You can know it fully this morning. And if you do know that hope, then let's be a life-giving church by sharing it. Father God, thank you for what you do and who you are. Thank you that, that we get to be a church that celebrates and gives hope. And God, I pray this morning that you would just make us a life-giving church as we give hope. And God, I pray if there's someone in here that doesn't know of that hope, that, that they're still trying to face their situations on their own, God, let them see this morning that you have set forth a pattern of control, that you are God and you are mighty over the situations that they face. And God, may that give them life as they believe in you. Thank you for what you've said in your word and what you've done for us through your compassionate love and giving us hope. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.